Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. Today, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. Last week, we covered uh, verses 11 through 14, and this week, we're going to cover verses 11 to 14 briefly, and then we're going to pick up 15 to 21. So those of you who were here last week can ask your neighbor to wake you when I get to verse 15. Uh, Just keep the snoring to a minimum. Now, as I have said before, the letter to the Galatians is about Paul's protection of the gospel of grace. And Paul is passionate about this. He's quite ready to defend his message, even before the pillars of the church. And Paul was unwilling to allow this message of grace to be edited or changed in any way, and that's why he's so aggressive towards these false prophets, these false apostles, these people that wanted to distort the truth of grace. Well, at this point, Paul had been accused by those who are known as the Judaizers of plagiarizing the apostles' teaching and manipulating it for his own purposes. And Paul answers this accusation with transparency. He gives testimony of his pre-conversion life, his conversion, and his post-conversion in chapter 1. And we went through all of that. And this, this letter was written to the four churches that Paul founded in Galatia. They were principally Gentile churches who had little or no acquaintance with Judaism. So they had descended on the Galatians like a plague, and they were distorting the message of grace. They told the Galatians that Paul had given them only a partial gospel, and that they, the Judaizers, were coming with the authority of the church in Jerusalem to give them a superior gospel. And the Judaizers taught that salvation through faith in Christ was necessary, along with the right of circumcision, and certain aspects of the law had to be maintained, principally ceremonial law. So it was a Jesus-plus theology. And the Judaizers attacked Paul's authority because he was not one of the original twelve. They claimed superiority over Paul. So Paul, in chapter 1, gives us a full account of his apostolic calling on the road to Damascus, And he proves that his message did not come from man, but from God. And all of that happened in chapter 1. Then in chapter 1, we read a a brief visit that Paul made to the church in Jerusalem in order to get acquainted with Peter. And there he met in passing James, the brother of Jesus, who was in fact the head of the Jerusalem church. Then in chapter 2, Paul writes about a longer visit to Jerusalem some 14 years later. And it was 14 years before Paul felt compelled to return. So he was no respecter of persons. He was going there simply to affirm his message. Not to get approval, but to affirm it. And we covered verses 11 through 
14 last week, as I said, and we're going to go through that again. You'll notice as we look at verse 11 that Paul is relaying an event that took place in Antioch. Remember, this is a letter to the Galatians. So this narrative that he's writing, he's writing to the Galatians, okay? And Antioch was the principal city of Syria where the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles actually began. Let's look at verse 11. Now, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face about his conduct there because he stood condemned by his own actions. Well, Peter was condemned. Why? Well, because he was standing in the flesh. Your translation may say, I withstood Peter. And that is, the Greek word there actually means to set oneself against. It's a defensive word. It's a response to an assault. And Paul is declaring that Peter is the aggressor. And Paul is responding with his defense. And Paul would immediately recognize the work of the enemy there. It was a deception that would cause men people of the church to regard one another according to the flesh. And what do we know about flesh? It always divides. This was the work of the enemy to divide the body of Christ. And Paul sees it very quickly, and he uh, confronts Peter. Peter, by his behavior, was denying the heart of the gospel. And some would say, Paul... You're really making much ado over this minor issue. But no, it is not a minor issue. It is a wicked assault on the truth. So Paul's response was more than the indignation of flesh. It was literally God in Paul, through Paul, speaking to this uh, distortion of truth. So... Peter, the reputed great apostle of the Jerusalem church, one of the pillars of the early church, was at this point demonstrating carnality. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, used to eat his meals with the Gentiles. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that Jews and Gentile Christians were united under the new covenant into one faith. As a result, or with the result, that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So before this group arrived, Peter had been regularly eating meals with the Gentiles. And not just eating with them, but eating what they served. And both of those were things were an issue. It was his practice to join them for meals. Now, the imperfect verb tense, as I told you last week, that's used here, indicates that this was a continual action before the Jerusalem committee arrived. And Peter was being, actually at this point, he was being true to his vision in Acts 10, where God said, what God has cleansed and pronounced clean, no longer consider common or unholy. So for a time, Peter ate what the Gentiles ate with no regard to Jewish law concerning such things and was very comfortable with it. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he said to them, are you Two, so foolish and lacking in understanding, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile and dishonor him, since it does not enter his heart, 
but only his stomach. And from there, it is eliminated. By this, he declared all foods ceremonially clean. So Peter's enjoying his liberty and fellowship among the Gentile brethren when this committee of Jews arrive from Jerusalem. And I would point out to you before the new covenant, a Jew would not even go into the home of a Gentile, much less sit down and eat with them. But as we read in Ephesians 2, God tore down the dividing wall. There's neither Greek, Jew, nor Gentile, or there was no separation. There is simply those born from above and those who are born of the flesh alone. There are no longer any distinctions according to the flesh. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he will regard no one according to the flesh because the flesh will always lead you into carnality in your judgments every single time. God regards no divisions according to the flesh. He sets that aside. He looks at the heart. So, We know that when we move into carnality, we will view ourselves and others according to the flesh and seek to find our worth in the distinctions of the flesh. And this is what Peter vividly illustrates for us. So when the Jews arrive, Peter begins to withdraw himself. And the word withdraw describes a strategic move. It's an imperfect tense that indicates a gradual moving away from. Now listen, I don't want you to be confused about Peter here. He's not worried that he's violating the law. Do you think for a minute that Peter thinks that he's going to be more righteous before God if he abstains from certain foods or he separates himself from the Gentiles? Do you think he believes that even for a second? No. Peter's not doing this because of the law. He's doing this because of man. He's doing this because of flesh. He's doing this to protect his reputation. He's doing this because he, it says in verse 12, he was fearful of the circumcision. He was fearful of this group. He was afraid to be judged. He didn't stand in the truth. He went along with the crowd because of fear. As I said last week, there's only one fear that the new creation should tolerate, and that is the fear of reverence. Everything else is a manipulation of evil. Everything else is the enemy drawing you into unbelief. So he was afraid. He was afraid he might lose something in the flesh. He had to protect his identity, his reputation. In the flesh, he was threatened. He was back to living like he used to live. You see, Peter's flesh was the Peter that denied Christ. Peter's flesh was the Peter that hid behind locked doors hid from the Jews. But that's not the Peter that was there that day. The Peter that hid behind locked doors, the Peter that denied Christ, is dead. He's no longer alive. This is Peter actually stealing a dead man's identity because the old Peter died with Christ. He's walking in a dead man's identity and is no longer functioning as a new creation. And he did this because of fear. Fear will throw you into self-protection so quick. You see, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like every Saturday, and used to be every Sunday, there's always something that's going to happen that's going to attempt to draw me into the flesh. To draw me into the concerns of the flesh. 
either my flesh or somebody else's. So that I can begin to see them that way and I can see myself that way. And the whole point is this. The enemy knows that those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. You are not worshiping in spirit and in truth if your focus is on the flesh of your flesh or the flesh of others. You've relinquished worship altogether. You are now focused upon wickedness. And that's what flesh is. You thought it was just you, right? But the enemy knows. He knows any time that you're going to give a witness, any time that you're going to enter in with the whole of your being into worshiping the Lord, into presenting the truth, into whatever it is that God has for you, He will work at trying to draw you into living according to the flesh, thinking according to the flesh. And that's exactly what He did with Peter. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, that's Peter, in front of everyone, If you, being a Jew, live as you have been living, like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how is it that you are now virtually forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, if they want to eat with you? Now, Paul writes, when I saw that they were not behaving in a straightforward way, and actually that's an interpretation of the Greek word ortho, where we get our English word orthopedics from, okay? It means straight. And Paul is telling Peter that he's not walking with straight feet. Peter had strayed from the truth. The word that he uses for life there is zao. It has nothing to do with who you are inside. It has everything to do with the externals of living. Verse 15 and 16, Paul says, I went on to say, we are Jews by birth and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Yet we know that a man is not justified and placed in right standing with God by works of the law, but only through faith in God's beloved Son, Christ Jesus. And even we, as Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. By observing the law, no one will ever be justified, declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty. Now, I'm sure there's been a lot of confusion about verse 15, okay? In fact, I've heard it used incorrectly to prove that we are sinners. We are just sinners living by grace. No, that is false theology. It is a lie, okay? The Greek word that is being used there for sinners is not a moral condition, but a legal one, okay? For the Jew, sinner was synonymous with Gentile. Because the Gentiles did not possess or live to the law, the lawless Gentiles were considered sinners by the Jews. And as we look at verse 15, we also see that neither the Jew or the Gentile was justified regardless of their lineage. The Jews who were given the law discovered that they could not be justified by observing the law. And we know the only way that a man could be justified before God was through faith in Christ. In fact, the old Puritan definition of justification is this, just as if I had never been 
a sinner. Just as if I had never been a sinner. That's justification. To justify, and I want you to hear me here, to justify does not mean to make righteous. That's not what it means. It means that God has justified our position on the basis of the work of Christ. We have been authenticated as righteous by God because of Christ. We've been certified. You see those old thing, certified used cars? Well, it's not anything like that. <laughs> it's so much better. Because what God says is true. We have been certified as righteous. Authenticated as righteous. Paul says, even we as Jews must be justified by faith in Christ. Because no man can be justified by observing the law. It's important to note that Paul declares that we cannot be saved by any obedience to the law. Even if you obeyed the law perfectly, it would not justify you. So, you know, it really begs the question why so many Christians are trying to obey the law in part in order to gain favor with God, get a little edge, maybe he'll help us. Wrong. It won't justify you at all. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's real simple. Jesus said it. You must be born again. The law won't get it done. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified in Christ by faith, we ourselves are found to be sinners, does that make Christ an advocate or promoter of sin? Certainly not. The we right there is referring to Jewish Christians. Okay? So if the Judaizers were right, Peter had been caught up in sin before they arrived by eating with sinners and partaking of unclean food with the Gentiles. So Peter was sinful before they arrived. If Paul is right, it's the other way around. Christ insisted on the same salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile by faith, apart from works, apart from observing the law. Does that make Christ a promoter or an advocate of sin? Paul is telling Peter that by his action, he was actually condemning Christ. Think about that. He was condemning Christ because he sought to be justified in addition to the work of Christ. And Jesus said, only by the salvation of his death and resurrection will you be saved. Only by the new birth will you be saved. So... Verse 18 and 19. For if I or anyone else rebuild through word or by practice what I tore down, the belief that observing the law is essential for salvation, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For the law I died to, the law and its demands on me, because salvation is provided through death, the death and resurrection of Christ, so that I might from now on live to God. So Paul uses a reference there. He says, if I, he's softening up his whole uh, pointed confrontation of Peter. And the point's really clear. He says, Paul, Paul says, you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot excuse yourself from the law by faith in Christ and then condemn or disassociate yourself from the Gentiles for not following the law. It's pure hypocrisy. 
If you rebuild what you once tore down, which was justification through the law, you have condemned yourself. And by the way, you know, condemnation is the exact opposite of justification. They're parallel to one another. He says, if you do that, you're condemned. In verse 19, Paul is saying, the law has served its purpose. The law has served its purpose. It has revealed my need to die. Therefore, the guilty sinner that I was has been put to death by the law. The wages of sin is death. Judgment has been served. And the sentence was carried out in Christ. I am now justified, living justified to God. That's basically what he says in verse 19. And then he caps it in verse 20. And that's the verse that everybody knows. He says, I following through with what he's been saying. And remember, he's using the example of Peter living and walking according to the flesh, living in, or walking in carnality, trying to prove himself according to the flesh through the law. He's using that example to go through this whole explanation of grace. And he says in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, in him I have shared his crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul finishes his reasoning with a declaration of facts. That's what this is. It's a declaration of facts. I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense fact. Here Paul declares that the I, which was Paul or Saul, that was born of the flesh under Adam, that that I was under the law. The I of verse 19 was put to death by the just demand of the law. It was crucified with Christ. It is a fact that the I, the old I, was in Christ when he was crucified and we died together. Statement of fact. The I is dead. That I is dead. It's not laying dormant. It's not in a coma, ready to wake up at any time. It is completely gone. It is no longer in existence. You wonder how God can look upon you and not see the sin. You wonder how he can look upon you and remember your sins no more. Because that I is dead, as if it never existed. Before God. Remember the definition of justification. Okay. The life that Paul now lives, the life that Paul now has, is the life of a different person altogether. A new creation. Reborn in Christ. However, this new life still lives in the same body, in the same world, with the same soul... And that requires him to live this new life, how? By faith. That's why we have to live this life by faith. Because the truth within us is not in alignment with the lie of the body. We're wearing somebody else's suit. So, this new life, because of the disposition of the soul, 
And the soul is rarely in agreement with the truth of the new eye. But the soul, which is the mind, will, and the emotions, is prejudiced by the body, the world, and the enemy. Have you caught on to that? That the disposition of your soul is not you? Have you caught on to that? Because many of us live like it is. So if we feel angry, we are angry. If we feel offended, we are offended. If we feel joyful, we are joyful. If we feel whatever we feel or whatever we think, we believe is us. Let me tell you something. It's very clear. The mind, will, and emotions of the soul are an instrument to be played. And they will be played. They're either going to be played through the Spirit of God, or they will be played through the world, the enemy, and the flesh that is your old body. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.